many have felt God's presence this morning in this place, huh? Amen. I'm, I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged to see new faces, as just as I'm encouraged to know that there are possibly, I'm not exaggerating, thousands of people who will be watching us uh, today, if not now, in the next uh, two, three, four days. We've been getting four or 5,000 people watching our services um, in many parts of the world. So that we praise the Lord for that. And um, uh, we, we thank Him because he's, he's giving us the flexibility to get used to doing church in a different way, in a new way. Um, and I have to learn, for example, to uh, be mindful of uh, these invisible but very present people who are you know, participating with us in a virtual sphere, a virtual congregation. You know, it's, it's, some, it's something that takes a mental adjustment. But I think the Lord is leading humanity into all kinds of new dimensions and adjustments and perspectives. Uh, and uh, the church has to be as flexible as any other institution, maybe more so, because all of this is part of God's preparation for what he has in store for the future of mankind and the way that he wants to reveal himself in humanity. You know, when Jesus came to earth 2,000 years ago, um, many uh, observers and scholars have, have uh, noted that it was a time when the gospel, because of the uh, uh, Roman Empire that um, went through many different parts of the world, and the Romans had established a, an extraordinary uh, network of uh, highways and roads and uh, had unified, to a certain degree, much of the known world. And uh, so it was a lot easier for people like Paul to go from country to country spreading the gospel and for the gospel to spread much uh, faster and much wider than it could have otherwise done so. Because it was at a certain point in human uh, development that it was possible to have the gospel you know, spread out through all of these networks of communication and transportation that the Roman Empire and other empires uh, had uh, provided. So it was a very timely, strategic moment in human history when Jesus comes to earth because humanity is, in, in a way, much more ready to hear and to receive the gospel. God is a strategic God, and he, he thinks in terms of thousands of years. And now humanity finds itself with another Roman highway. It's called the Internet. And it's so much more uh, capable of spreading uh, God's uh, words and his will to uh, an entire humanity. And I believe that this is part of what God is doing to prepare the world for another level of revelation that he has for his creation. And, and uh, I know that uh, the fact that Lion of Judah has been able to prepare itself over several years with um, our capacity to live stream and to connect in so many ways. Yesterday alone, I mean, um, uh, there was a small gathering of women that my wife was leading upstairs on the fourth floor. <clears throat> there was about 60 women, really. But she was telling me that by the end of the day, how many, how many people had watched Four hours later, 1,700, 1,700 people had, been, had watched that program. They had connected to it in one way or another. So, I mean, you know, we're, this, is a, this is the new reality that we are inhabiting. And Lion of Judah is living this out because right now as I speak, I see a lovely number of you, by the way, here, and I'm encouraged by that. But there's also hundreds and hundreds of Lion of Judah members and people who identify with the congregation right now watching and participating. And I always want to be mindful of that. As I saw Giovanni 
Pulcini up there, all the way at the end of the, of the uh, balcony, you know, I realized that, you know, that there's more people. I, I hadn't been a, become aware of her, but there she is sitting there, and she's part of us, even though we don't see her. Um, and so it is like that many times, you know, we, we don't see you, uh, but we know that, that, that you are there, and we have to train ourselves to see Lion of Judah, because, you know, this thing may last for a little bit longer, the whole quarantining thing, and people being afraid of, uh, you know, uh, being in congregation, congregating in larger groups and so on, which is perfectly okay. We understand your concerns very well. Um, but so, so we, need to, we need to adjust in other ways. We need to keep doing church. We need to keep worshiping the Lord in our houses. We, you need to be connecting and congregating in this new virtual way. And you also need to keep giving. I, I can't forget that as a pastor because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a steward of this congregation and I, I have to be concerned about the needs of our church. And so, um, you know, you need to be doing all of these things, maybe not in the usual way, but I, I encourage you to connect your heart and your spirits in a very intentional way to keep serving God, to keep worshiping Him, to keep welcoming Him into your place in the way that only worshipful moments can uh, make possible. As you sit there in your uh, living room, you know, don't just lounge back or, you know, sit... Uh, or lie in your bed. I mean, take an intentional step forward and, uh, you know, concentrate. And maybe even you can put on your best suit or dress and, and uh, you know, know that you're in the presence of the Most High and that you are here because your mind is here, your spirit is here. So, in a sense, that's all that matters. The body is just a little vessel there that carries your neurology. And so, you have to, you know, be intentional as you worship the Lord. And, uh, you know, and we're all together worshiping God, and he's receiving our prayer and our worship. So we rejoice in that. We ask, Lord, give us wisdom and give us understanding. Help us to visualize and, and understand this new way and this new extraordinary things that you are doing with your creation. We revel in it. We welcome it. We rejoice in it. We do not fear, but we actually welcome your work in the midst of the times. So and we ask you to revive and ex accelerate and intensify your work among the nations and in all creation. And we are blessed and honored to be a part of your work in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let me read a few verses from a passage in, in Luke. And you will, at the, by the end of my presentation, hopefully you will understand why I have chosen this passage. Um, it is in Luke chapter 12, beginning with verse 13. And it says here that um, someone in the crowd said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. There was a family dispute. And this man who approaches Jesus feels that he's been unfairly treated by his brother who doesn't want to share the inheritance. He's doing something unjust. And he wants Jesus to, with his authority, to intervene on his behalf and to make things right. Jesus replied, Man, and he, Jesus must have gotten uh, a ghetto attitude at this moment. Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, and he now turns to the crowd, and he says, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. It's just one of the many sins that we can en engage in. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. What is he doing with this man? He's trying to steer him 
to a much wider understanding of his situation. He's trying to put his mind and his attention into a much uh, greater scope of spiritual considerations and concerns, not just to focus on the money that he's not getting, but to adopt a much more philosophical, a much more expansive attitude. It's not that he's um, neglecting what this guy is concerned about, but he sees a lot of other things behind that request, behind his approach, and he's, he's uh, pointing out these other elements of the situation, which is what we need to do and what I want to do this morning. And he told them this parable. <clears throat> the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, ah, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up, laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Notice that he's still remaining within this thing about possessions and about money and about the things that we so strive for and fight for and kill for and so on and so forth. But he's looking at it from a much more expansive perspective. And this is what I want to do this morning. I want to zoom out for a moment from the, what we are living. And, and, and I've, I've really wanted to uh, discuss more at depth the George Floyd uh, killing and the moment that we are living in America. But I want to zoom out to 10,000 feet up or maybe 30,000 feet. And I want us to take the 30,000 expansive, 30,000 foot expansive view of what we are living. And I intend to continue with this for a while, not to kind of wear something down to the ground, but just to use this as a point of departure for other considerations and other meditations, because this is what the people of God do. We take moments and we take opportunities that the devil wants to use to kill, maim, destroy, steal, and we turn them to our advantage and we grow stronger, wiser, more uh, like Jesus in our way of looking and, and living life. We're all aware that the, the killing of George Floyd has shaken this nation unlike few social political events in, in the past years. The dramatic way in which uh, George Floyd was killed with raw video footage showing him handcuffed and lying on the ground with a white police officer applying his knee to Floyd's neck for almost, almost nine horrible minutes, this, uh, it struck a raw nerve in, in the heart of this nation. Coming in the trail of other highly publicized cases of police, police abuse and brutality against African Americans in recent years, you know, it, 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 like, it became the proverbial straw that uh, broke the camel's back. It unleashed a national furor that spread over the entire nation with unprecedented levels of uh, protest, violence, and calls for major reform of the police system and its policies and practices. At this point, to insist on the cruelty and, and the brutality of Floyd's killing is almost uh, superfluous. So much has already been said, 
by many different voices that are far more eloquent and penetrating than mine. As you remember, last Sunday I asked Pastor Sam Acevedo to deliver a sermon on this very issue, simply because I felt that uh, I could not improve upon his own remarks that, by the way, were originally meant uh, to benefit uh, his team of mentors and, and counselors at the Higher Education Resource Center who do an extraordinary job in the high schools of this city. If you haven't heard that sermon, by the way, I strongly suggest that you do. My own sermon this morning, and I'll clarify this and emphasize it, my own sermon this morning is simply a continuation and a further development of the observations that he made last Sunday. I was not evading my responsibility as senior pastor of this church, and to those that have asked for a view of my, on my part about what is happening, I was simply real, just making that meditation uh, a part of uh, an, an extended meditation of our church on this matter. So please uh, see his sermon and mine this morning as one single meditation developed in two parts and my, the other subsequent ones also as part of an entire rumination on this subject. If, if I seem to be missing some things in this sermon, it is partly because I'm assuming that you have heard the previous one and that you are able to complement my observations this morning with those that were made by Sam uh, last Sunday. And by the way, um, uh, Sam recently had a piece, a uh, written piece published in WBUR's opinion section the, in a publication called Conoscenti on why Boston's graduates need a real graduation ceremony this year. It's a very interesting piece, and I suggest that you uh, read it. It's, it's very well written, and um, he's also had another piece published by the Boston Globe recently. So, hey, we... we uh, we celebrate uh, Sam's uh, literary achievements, and we pray that the Lord will continue using him to be a voice. And Lion of Judah is very much involved in the times in, in this city and many of the things that God is doing. So we, we give God the glory, and we celebrate that. So, you know, he referred to uh, uh, Jim Wallace's book of the same name about uh, America's um, uh, original sin. He, he referred to racism as this nation's original sin. And, and he is right. Um, Jim Wallace, you know, speaks about white power and all kinds of other things. And yes, you know, to a certain degree, he is uh, correct in many things. And, and, and original sin, you know, uh, the enslavement and racism that has plagued so much of our society. And I want us to take a look at a much wider level of this uh, sin. Beginning with the mistreatment of Native Americans in the 17th century by the Europeans arriving in this continent... And I have to emphasize that it wasn't, just, it wasn't the Puritans as much in the beginning. The Puritans came with a very spiritual intent, but they, were, they weren't just religious Christians who came in the Mayflower. There were a lot of other secular people, and they, as always happens, they complicated and, and uh, contaminated so much of what the, what the Puritans, uh, the pilgrims, wanted to do here in America. And so they were, you know, they conspired in many ways uh, and the church has always been plagued by these complications of people who don't fear the Lord, who come in and kind of ride with the blessings that God brings and contaminate the political sphere and all the other spheres of human interaction. So, but, but truly, yes, in the 17th century, the, the Europeans who arrived in this continent uh, took uh, native lands uh, in ways that were you know, in, in, inexcusable. 
And the history of this country has been characterized by one act of oppression after another since then. In addition to African Americans and Native Americans being enslaved or mistreated, also there were Chinese immigrants who were brutally exploited to build America's transcontinental railroad during the country's 19th century expansion toward uh, the West. Also in the 19th century, Irish and later on Italian immigrants uh, took their turn at being discriminated against with the potato famine, for example. Millions of, uh, of uh, Irish people um, disseminated themselves all over the world seeking the same thing that migrants today are seeking, uh, relief from their misery and a place where they can begin anew and have an opportunity to develop their lives and to use their gifts. But yes, Irish and Italian immigrants came to America and, and they took their own turn, just as the Native Americans and the Africans uh, who were enslaved here had experience. And they were discriminated before they got their own chance later to discriminate against other immigrants who came after them. Uh, we must remember that until relatively recently, Latinos and African Americans would walk the streets of predominantly Irish South Boston only at the risk of their own lives, threatened by those very Irish who experienced such discrimination when they first came. So it was their turn to be hazed. It's been a, just one flow after another. Now on the Latino side, the history of Latin America is one of conquest and brutal exploitation of the native populations that were in the continent when the Spaniards arrived in the 15th century, and especially in the 16th century with the arrival of the Portuguese, the French, uh, and all the other groups that came to that part of the world. But you know, interestingly enough, centuries before the Spaniards arrived in Latin America to exploit and to conquer, the native peoples of the continent had been enslaving and exploiting each other in ways that were just as brutal and cruel as the ones that the Spaniards themselves had employed. I, I remember reading a, a book on the conquest many years ago and uh, reading about uh, Cortes uh, and his men who came, who, who came into Latin America and when they were entering Mexico, what is now Mexico City, with the Aztec Empire, smelling blood a mile away because there were all kinds of sacrifices. This is the, the, the Wars of the Flowers. It's an interesting epoch in, America, in, in native uh, Latin American history. Tribes, uh, Latin American tribes, Indian tribes would, would um, put together these wars <clears throat> to very deliberately gain slaves and sacrificial victims for their demonic gods that they uh, worshipped. And the smell of blood was uh, palpable in the air of uh, native Amerindian peoples enslaving and killing each other and massacring each other in order to make sacrifices for their gods. One of the most brutal systems of slavery that ever existed was actually not here in uh, North America, but in the Caribbean, in places like the West Indies and Haiti, where black slaves were dehumanized and mistreated in ways that are hard to contemplate or describe. One of the most cruel systems, actually, of slavery, as I say, 
was not here. It was, you know, read uh, West Indian history, read Dominican history, read Haitian history. Actually, the first country to liberate itself from uh, foreign dominion uh, was Haiti, 1789, I think it is, you know, in the Western Hemisphere, um, because of the, the extreme cruelty of the French uh, and of the French uh, and, uh, slavery system. The slaves were so filled, filled up with uh, frustration and exploitation that they simply rebelled and killed thousands and thousands of French uh, slaveholders who had to flee back to France. And interestingly enough, then they established a system of, uh, of enslavement of their own people that was just as brutal. It, even to this day in Haiti, the exploitation is incredible. And the, the uh, abuse of the upper classes against the, the uh, lower classes is extraordinary. And Dominicans who had been exploited by the Spanish now still exploit these uh, Haitian immigrants who um, cultivate their cane uh, in jobs that Dominicans don't want to do. I, I could go on and on. The history of the human race is, a, is an uninterrupted chain of exploitation, discrimination, oppression, and violence of the stronger against the weaker. Over and over, the oppressed become oppressors. And oppressors, in turn, have been enslaved and exploited by others stronger than they. It's an endless chain of oppression and conquest and violence of man against man, ethnic group against ethnic group. No nation or ethnic group on earth has been exempt from this cruel, sinful dynamic. Africans sold their brothers and sisters to cruel slave traders from various European nations, nations in which in turn fought and warred with each other to gain mastery and superiority over each other, and which dominated each other over the centuries. The writer of Ecclesiastes said it well many centuries ago. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 8. If you see the poor oppressed in a district, anywhere, and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. Do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed, is observed by a higher one. And over them both are others higher still. The, inc the increase from the land is taken by all. In other words, the profit of possessions is taken by all. The king himself, the president himself, profits from the fields. Democrats and Republicans, they all profit from our toil, from our labor. Again, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1. You know, is this really, uh, this thing popping a lot here? Uh, is it okay, uh, you know... If not, I'll just take a regular microphone. It's fine? Okay. All right. Just a, You know, Ecclesiastes 4.1 says the same thing. Again, he's, the, the writer says, Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. 
These words were written 3,000 years ago. And they are as applicable today as they were back then. Evil, oppression, discrimination, and racism lie irrevocably within the human heart itself. Racism is not only America's original sin, it is the original sin of every race and every ethnic group that has ever walked the surface of the earth. Now, let me make it clear that we should denounce and fight racism and discrimination wherever we find it. I'm not suggesting that we should just become inured and kind of insensitive just because it's been with us forever and ever. We should not ignore and, and become accustomed to racism just because it is persistent or because it will never be eradicated from the, safe, from the face of this earth until Jesus comes again to restore creation. So let me emphasize this again, okay? Because I don't want to be misinterpreted as I build my case. The brutal killing of George Floyd should be protested and repudiated by every decent human being in this country. Okay? This is, this is, this is as a matter of fact, a great opportunity, despite how horrid it is, it's a, it's a great moment, a Kairos moment, for soul-searching and political reform and inner examination in this nation. This is a good moment to, to re-examine the values that inform the recruitment of police officers. Training, training protocols of uh, police recruits should be improved. More emphasis should be placed on peacekeeping and reconciliation and less on sheer, naked, blunt enforcement. More, more opportunity should be given to minority candidates to join police officer forces all over the country. Why? Because sometimes, you know, precisely because uh, partiality is in the human heart. When you have more officers of different nationalities and ethnic groups, they're able to understand better the nuances of their own people as they minister to them in the discharge of their duties. And so this kind of thing can help because you can read signs and signals uh, that sometimes others cannot read and you can diffuse all kinds of explosive situations. So the, the fact that there should be more officers of different groups and races, I think it's, it's just a, it's a good way it's not just because they're of other groups and, you know, affirmative action. It's because it, it helps to keep the peace. It helps to, to provide good, nuanced, healthy policing. Emphatic moral and ethical training should continue to be a part of every police recruit's education. Individual instances of police misconduct should be prosecuted rather than winked at and glossed over. I, I believe all these things. More than ever, we should use the momentum that we now have to improve in significant ways the procedures and protocols of every police department in America. At the same time, we should be aware that police work is inherently a messy, dangerous business. There are evil, twisted people walking the streets of our cities. That is undeniable. And these people are white, they're black, they're Hispanic, they're Asian. Put whatever ethnic group you want in there. 
They are upper class, middle class, working class. Some of them are suicidal. Some of them are full of rage. Others are crazed by drugs or just plain rebellious and unwilling to submit to authority. More than 800,000, I, I looked this up, I was saying 200,000 policemen you know, in, in, uh, and women, uh, law enforcement officers in America, because I didn't want to exaggerate. I looked it up yesterday. You can do that yourself. There are more than 800,000 police officers in this nation. And uh, these police officers are thrust every day into that dangerous world of split-moment decision-making. And over the course of hundreds of encounters over many years, many police officers become hardened or cynical. They, they have uh, attended many funerals of fallen comrades. They have seen colleagues kill, killed by an enraged, abusive husband on a Saturday night in a small, cramped apartment during a domestic dispute. They have learned that a second of hesitation can sometimes cost them their life. And often and inevitably, because that's the way of human nature, they, they accumulate resentments and, and develop stereotypes of the various groups that they work with. In order to survive, because the human brain works this way, they begin to recognize patterns and to divide people into categories and to remember the reference of other situations that others of them faced, that they themselves faced, and they, become, they begin to generalize. That's the way the human brain works. They, they begin to organize their work in patterns and, and to organize individuals into categories that facilitate their work, but that sometimes predispose them to make serious, costly mistakes. They will tend to generalize. They will, they will uh, reduce the individuality of the people that they work with, and uh, they just proceed according to basic categories that they build for themselves. Because this is what you do when your life is at stake. You want to get back home to your children. You want to be able to retire at the end and get that police pension. And so they, they proceed in this survival mode, and they do things that often will end up hurting people. Many of these officers do not have the psychological complexity and the moral maturity to deal with the temptations of power, money, or the intoxicating effects of the authority that they are allowed to wield every day as they carry out their work. We take very imperfect men and women and give them the power of little gods every day. We expose them to all kinds of risks, temptations, deformations, and exquisite moral dilemmas. You take Joe Schmo from somewhere and you give him a shield and you give him a gun and you give him extraordinary amounts of power and you expect them to take this, this exquisite, delicate power that they have and to use it as if they were philosophers and uh, theological geniuses. And most of them, many of them, definitely are not that. And that's the nature of this thing. A small minority <clears throat> of these men and women commit hyenas acts and, and should be prosecuted for them. <clears throat> Others sometimes make tragic, honest mistakes 
and because of the nature of their work and the impossible situations and dilemmas that they are put in, they should be rightfully given the benefit of the doubt. Whether in war, police work, or pastoral or priestly ministry, wherever sinful fallen men and women are placed in positions of great authority and power, injustices will inevitably be committed. This is the nature of human existence. Horrible as it may sound, the chauvins of the world will be with us as long as policemen and soldiers and priests and pastors and politicians are given great power and required to manage this fallen world. Now, as Christians, with a biblical worldview, we cannot afford to fall prey to the passions and petty political partisanship that afflicts America at this point. The devil wants to ensnare us in this unending cycle of resentment, racial prejudice, and unhealed wounds. Satan has an endless supply of wounded, deformed George Floyds and Derek Chauvin's, ready to be enlisted to play their tragic roles in social dramas, concocted and calculated to generate more hatred, more racial resentment, more deaths, and more misguided political solutions that will make Satan's job easier and keep us all going around in circles, becoming angrier and more confused with each new tragedy or injustice that takes place in this sad world of ours. I read um, yesterday as an exercise the case of um, Rodney King. There's so many of these names that you kind of, they get kind of lost in the, 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 the multiplicity of them. You know, if you read, that, that took place in 1991. And, and you read, uh, you know, I think at least 63 people were killed and thousands of people were injured. One billion dollars at least was destroyed in property. All kinds of proclamations were made and, uh, you know, mea culpas were uh, uh, declared. And 20 years ago, here we are living a similar situation with equal elements of outrage and so on and so forth. And, and it seems to be an endless thing. Satan is not out of, uh, he's got an endless repertoire of these events and of these situations. He is a master at deception, at manipulation, at working in the human realm. As Christians, we, should, we understand that. You know, it says our, Paul says that our struggle is not against, um, princip- against the flesh or blood. It is not against social political processes. It is not against the injustices of the world. It is not against this president or that president, this party or that party, that uh, level of distribution of wealth or whatever it is. He says our struggle, our fight is against principalities and powers against forces of evil that are placed in high places, capable of manipulating human events and creating situations that will foster hatred and resentment and wounds and, and uh, confuse people and cloud their judgment and fill them with uh, rage to kill others and to destroy 
others, even sometimes our own people. And this is, the, this is what the devil does. And, and as believers, we have, to, we have to understand this in order to, to confront these situations in a way that is appropriate and that is wise. And that does, do not place us under the control of this puppeteer that loves to use human events to advance his own cause and his own agenda. Derek Chauvin's uh, killing of George Floyd needs to be recognized for the heinous act of abuse that it is. It needs to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. It needs to be seen as representative of injustices that have to be corrected in this imperfect country of ours. It needs to be put in its proper historical context. Yes, it needs to be seen as part of that shameful narrative of slavery, the Ku Klux Klan, Jim Crow, segregation, and lynchings in lonely rural locations that took place and have taken place all over America over centuries. At the same time, it needs to be examined through the lenses of the scriptures and of our biblical worldview. We cannot afford to kind of put that aside as we seek to interpret this correctly and to derive practical lessons from it. We will not find the, the proper perspective for this tragedy <clears throat> in the pages of the New York Times or the comments of uh, Fox News or whatever other publication you choose to get your news from or your interpretations from. Neither Donald Trump nor Nancy Pelosi have the moral or spiritual depth to guide us through the complexities of this tragic drama that we are living. It is up to the church to provide the proper moral and spiritual perspective that will inform the actions of our politicians, our civil servants, our policemen, our health workers. Once, when, when asked, uh, as you saw in the, my reading in the beginning, when asked to intervene in a family situation of perceived injustice, this, young, this man walks to Jesus and says, Hey, I'm being mistreated here. Use your authority to intervene. Jesus refused to, to become entangled in the specifics of the situation. And instead, what he did was he directed the, intention, the attention of his listeners to the intricacies of the human heart, to the complexities of, of uh, the spiritual condition that we face and that we parse every day. Jesus responded to the spiritual dynamic that lay behind the specific act of injustice that he was being presented with. He, he took the 10,000-foot view. He took it up to, he zoomed out and said, look at this. In, in, from another perspective. And, so, and he responded by issuing a, a solemn warning to his listeners. In, in Luke chapter 12, you can put that up, Luke, Luke 12, verses 14 and 15, uh, you, you hear, you know, said, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And then he says to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. 
And then he proceeds to deliver a parable about the, the spiritual perils of greed and materialism. He takes this rich man who's never satiated with all his money and all his possessions, who just needs more and more. Greed is an itch that the more you, you scratch it, the more it itches. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure both that man who approaches Jesus and the people around him expected a more specific, a more committed answer from Jesus. He expected him to take part in this thing, to take a side. And you know, by the way, it's, it's something that Jesus always refused to do. When the Pharisees approached him trying to entrap him again to get him to, be, to, to become unpopular to one side or the other, they took this coin with, with the Roman uh, emperor's uh, imprint in it, and they said, hey, should we pay taxes to Rome? Rome was an abusive, oppressive, imperialistic power that was at that time had its boots on Israel's neck. And they said, hey, do we need to pay this, these, these oppressors? And just said, hey, give me, give me a coin. He says, you know, whose who's, who's imprint is that on the coin? Well, Caesar's. Well, pay Caesar what is Caesar's, pay God what is God's. I'm sure that, you know, he left everybody dissatisfied and even angry. You know, Jesus had this, this perspective, because you know something, we always want to enlist God on the side of our cause, which we perceive, sometimes rightfully so, that you know, it should be. But you know, some, there's something that you read in Scripture over and over again. It is this hesitation to get entangled in the um, petty manipulations of men and the human systems. I've, I've been ruminating on, on this moment when this angel appears to Joshua just as they're going to conquest this uh, very sinful city, Jericho. And Joshua discovers this powerful angel, this warrior angel standing before him. And he says, hey, on whose side are you? Are you on the side of the Jews or the side of the, um, the people from Jericho? Or the, Can the, Can the Canaanites? The Canaanites. And the angel says, neither. I'm not on either side. Actually, I'm here on behalf of the armies of the Lord. In other words, hey, I'm not your puppet and I'm not their puppet either. Don't try to make me just an agent of your own agenda. Uh, I, I am here pursuing the agenda of the kingdom of God and you are in for the ride. And that's the attitude that we need to have. When the disciples uh, are ready to see Jesus go up in heaven in his ascent and they say, Lord, will you restore Israel's fortunes and... Uh, you know, restore us to a place of prominence in the world. Jesus says, hey, that's not your business. The only thing you should be worried about is preaching the gospel and receiving power from on high to do a good job on behalf of your king. You know, we're always trying to, the, the Jews are trying to, okay, now it's our turn. We will throw the, uh, Jesus will throw the, the, the Roman armies out and, and it'd be our time to, to oppress the Romans and to oppress the Egyptians and to oppress all the other nations around. It's, it's, the, it's in the human heart and we want to uh, always have God on our side. <clears throat> and God says, I am not on your side. You better be on mine, however. And the church needs to have that kind of uh, dignity and objectivity an understanding of the real nature of the struggle that we wage here in the world. We can't afford to be pulled in by these petty individuals who are condemned to be condemned in the end. That's what the devil wants us to do. Jesus' perspective was so much wider and encompassing than the details of one specific moment of sinfulness. He knew that the answer lay 
in the transformation of the human heart. And this is why he calls them to change their heart, change their perspective, so that there won't be these moments of exploitation and of one brother uh, preventing his other brother from enjoying the fruits of their father's labor. He says that's where you need to, you need to address the heart. And he, he continued on, you know, with a... Uh, you read chapter 12. It's a very interesting development that you can't see unless you look at it from that perspective. He, he refused. Jesus refused to be distracted and entangled in the endless resolution of specific sinful acts. He knew that he would spend, like Moses, his whole day judging people and be prevented from the really important things that he had been called to do. That's what the devil wants. He wants us to be always, you know, like, like a cat being run around with a little ball. You know, he wants to distract the church. He wants the church to become entangled in all these human situations in order for, that the church will not look at its specific calling and remain tethered to its specific vision. So what Jesus did was he admonished his audience to sanctify themselves, to reject greed and materialism, to keep their eyes focused on eternity and to learn to interpret the signs of the times in order to be ready for the moment when God would put an end to history and bring about the resolution of all injustice. At the end of that passage and of his rumination, Jesus says, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain. And it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot. And it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard and be, to be reconciled on the way. Or your adversary may drag you off to the judge and the judge turn you over to the officer and the officer throw you in prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. My brothers and sisters, if there is anything that the events of our time show us, whether it is the fall of the Twin Towers, the economic crisis of 2008, the migration crisis that has taken place all over the world, the accelerating moral corruption of humanity, its refusal to see truth anymore, or the present coronavirus situation, or the George Floyd scandal and its resulting social polarization, what we what we, if there's something that we need to understand is that the coming of Jesus is at the door, nearer than ever. And let me tell you, I'm not a prophet of doom. I, you, you never hear me going around saying, Jesus is near, let's repent. I'm not a preacher of eschatology, although I respect eschatology high, highly and I study it very carefully. But it's on, we are in pregnant times and it is undoubtedly so that we are near to the resolution of all the, the historical processes that humanity has lived until this moment. History and the world are pregnant with imminence. And we need to live in the light of that. We need to prepare for it. Even as we continue to dedicate 
some of our energies to fighting specific acts of injustice in our nation. But it should be a partial thing. It's not the main thing for the church, my brothers and sisters. That's what the devil wants us to do. We want to become, he wants us to become a social justice church. We do social justice, I think, more than, than many churches in the Boston area. And I don't say that haughtily or, you know, boastfully. It's just a fact. And we will continue to do that. We dedicate a lot of our time. And I think the very presence of this group is, is social justice already. Um, the diversity. You have a Latino ministering to you and Latinos ministering to you. I know it's uncomfortable to people who are used to having us take care of the beds in your hotel rooms and, um, you know, driving your taxis and so on. And, and I, I congratulate you for being humble enough to submit yourself to that. I know that it's uncomfortable for many. And that is social justice. We are, by the very fact that we exist, an act of social justice. But the devil wants to distract us from the main thing. He wants to radicalize us politically and turn us against each other so that we forget as Christians what our main mission is. And what Jesus is saying to us more than ever, we need to sanctify ourselves. We need to prepare ourselves for the coming challenges of these end times that we're living and to ask the Lord to teach us how to read and interpret the signs of the times as Jesus did. He abstracted from the local moment and he zoomed out into the principles that underlay the situation that he was being presented with. And that's what we need to do in this time as well. We need to stop seeing the coronavirus as this annoying, deadly, threatening thing. And we need to see what does God have in that? What is in God's agenda what is it telling us? What is it telling me? What is it teaching me? How can I become stronger, better, leaner, more efficient and effective on behalf of the kingdom of God? How can I learn to disengage and, and uh, uh, disconnect myself from material possessions and, and, and uh, from the distractions of you know, the latest movie and the latest uh, electronic game? How can I become more purpose-minded, more focused on eternity, able to live more simply, <clears throat> to be content with less things, to dedicate myself more to prayer, to the examination of God's Word, to the perfecting of my character, and, and the, the, the disengagement from my flaws, my passions, my obsessions, so that God can use me more greatly in this pregnant time that I am living in. It is a privilege to live, to live these times. These things are not meant for you to be debilitated and weakened and and uh, preoccupied, these times are meant to train you, to make you stronger, to force you to look more at the Word of God, <clears throat> to be more forgiving, more loving, more tolerant, more patient, more like Jesus. This is what these times teach us. And that's what we should do. And Jesus is saying, this is what I want you to do. Read the times and live in the light of this eternity that is drawing nearer by the moment to you. It's not for us to become more entangled with the, with the little messes that Satan throws our way. It is to be more cognizant of eternity and the things of uh, the Spirit. And to become wise and enlightened. 
That's what God is asking us to do. I, I'm reading uh, from 2 Timothy 3 as I finish. 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3. This could have been written today. The Apostle Paul says, mark this. People of God, mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. And they're not over yet. When COVID disappears, there will be other things that will come. I assure you of that. And we better be ready. You better become more disengaged from your idolatry to yours and my savings account. And my desire to have a BMW in the front of the street so that people will envy me as I get in, in it and drive away. Disengage from all of that. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. It reaches even to the recesses of the church itself. Now, if that is not a, an x-ray of, um, of uh, this society, I don't know what is. It is a total denunciation of all the things that we see when we go out on the street and we watch the news and read the internet. Have nothing to do with such people. You know, don't let yourself be manipulated and um, recruited to, to these vain, destructive habits and behaviors. Because these people want to enlist the church on behalf of their little obsessions. They will want us to take sides. They will want us to become like them. Do not, do not be co-opted by the spirit of this world. It is very flattering and it is much less lonely up front. But it leads to huge tragedy at the end. So have the sagacity, the integrity, and the moral fortitude to stand your biblical ground and to be who you have been called to be by God. Refuse to become a pawn of the passions of this God-forsaken generation, whether it be, be from the highest levels of Washington or, or the lowest levels of a methadone mile. Refuse it. Minister in the wisdom and the objectivity of the Holy Spirit and the perspective of the kingdom of God. Paul says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And it will continue to be so more than ever. While evildoers... Now, this is the, this is the, the end for this generation. While evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse. Do not... Uh, do not uh, delude yourself into thinking that somehow you're going to change this generation. Try as much as you can, and we need to continue doing good. We need to continue 
doing the work of Higher Education Resource Center in Alpha and helping immigrants and helping young blacks and Latinos and, and uh, first generation people, young people get those degrees and develop their giftings and, and become examples of the redeeming power of the gospel. Let's continue doing that. I, I clamor for the day when the Church of Jesus Christ will be the primary trainer of young people. Not these, uh, these ignorant, God-forsaking people who, who don't understand the, 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 the complexity of the, of the human soul and of the human situation and therefore waste their time giving little gadgets to kids that don't know how to use them or are not interested in them because their soil has not been cultivated. I hope that the church will become that voice for moral power and profundity that it is not right now. Because evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. By whom? By that agent of evil who concocts all of these dramas to keep us dissatisfied, angry, vengeful, remorse. Uh, uh, full of um, vengeance and so on and so forth and nursing our wounds. That's what he wants us to do. But as for you, people of God, this is Paul still, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. You focus on, the, on, the, on what matters. You focus on the primordial principles of your faith. You read more and more of the Word and become colored by, by the, the, the beautiful colors of, of God's revelation. Let that form and inform your mentality and your way of living. Because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy, he's now speaking to Timothy himself, how from infancy, infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And I, and I do pray this morning that, that God will keep us tethered to His Word that we have received and give us the discernment that we need in order to properly navigate the moment that we are living in. May the Lord give us wisdom, understanding, and perspective. To whatever degree you feel that there's some measure of truth in what I'm saying, I want you right now to just say, Lord, I receive your word. I commit to your agenda. I forgive, forgive, forgive. I refuse to become entangled in the resentments of the world. I refuse to give space to any feeling, any attitude, any behavior that doesn't honor the compassionate heart of Jesus Christ and the fruit of the Spirit that he spoke, he spoke about in his word. And I say, Father, wherever, wherever our people are right now, whether it's through the internet or here in this place, may the words of uh, this meditation, insofar as they reflect your heart and your mind, make an imprint in them. I pray for your church, God, that it will have the power and the authority to speak 
your revelation in these times where it's so necessary. Lord, convict us, kill us, so that something new may be born. We want to be reborn in the image of Jesus Christ. Forgive us for wasting your time, Lord. Forgive us for being distracted in the petty things of uh, this world and make us real instruments of your agenda and the agenda of your kingdom in these coming years. Free us from Egypt, Lord. Take your church away from Egypt. Let it go deep into the wilderness and, and uh, be fashioned and to become what you needed to become in these times. Begin with me. We pray for healing in our land. We pray for healing of all of those that are hurt and saddened and offended and scandalized by what has taken place in this land. We, we pray for healing, Lord. Help your church to become an agent of healing. May there never be acts of oppression, abuse, control in this community that is Congregation Lion of Judah. We do pray, Lord, that the values of mercy, goodness, kindness, tolerance, respect for human life be the distinctive of this congregation and the people that are covered by it. We repudiate the works of the devil. We will have nothing to do with you, Satan. Nothing. We exile you from the life of this church. We do not receive your impressions, your invitations. We will only serve Jesus Christ, our Lord and the principles of God's kingdom. Nothing else will not be co-opted by your agenda, Satan. Father, we embrace your Father heart and the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. Forgive us to, in whatever measure we don't stand up to that desire. Make us more like our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for healing again, Lord, in families, in our community that has been so offended by what has taken place. We pray for healing and perspective, Lord. Forgive, forgive, forgive our nation. And send your peace upon this land, Father. Send relief and healing on this land. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, and the people of God said, Amen. God bless you.